This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Danny M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Grace Bonney, an author whose latest book, Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, Advice from Women Over 50, was just published on November 9th. Grace, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. We we learned just before we started recording that not only did your book come out yesterday, you just finished uh, some grad school exams. So this just feels like you are coming off of one of the greatest roles uh, <laughs> any of our guests has had. <laughs> I could not be happier. <laughs> I mean, congratulations. How do you feel? Do you should we should we like set aside some time for a cat nap? Are you are you all right? <laughs> are you tired? No, I'm good. I think the you know the adrenaline rush that happens when you finish something like a final is just really beautiful. So I'm wide awake and feel very grateful to be done. It's been a very long time since I took a final of any kind, but I definitely <laughs> remember that sense of just like, oh, I feel like Marie Chevalier at the end of a Lubitsch <laughs> film. Like I could just slightly float down the streets of Paris. I have no problems now. I feel like all the energy that I have lacked for the last few months suddenly like crystallized into this one moment. So I feel very awake and very happy, which is great. Well, and presumably at least some of that is because you are now imbued with the collective wisdom of all of these like <laughs> women, uh, like like some sort of like Buffy season seven thing, but with like, <laughs> you know, uh, the, 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 the wisdom that comes with age. I turned 40 this year as well. So I feel like there is this sense of perspective that helps me put everything, I don't know, in its right place right now. So it feels feels like a good age and a good place to be right now. Yeah. It also feels like a great place to be. Like, this isn't just me asking my friends. Like, I went up a decade. Like, I'm not just looking side to side. Yeah. I really, um, I struggled with that working on this book of like, what does this age mean in relation to the people that I'm talking to? And am I the right person to be asking these questions? And I think at the end of this project, I actually came away feeling like, no, I'm exactly where I need to be. And that feels really good. And I have not felt that in my life before. Yeah. And hopefully realizing like, I'm not uh, attempting to make like the final call on what constitutes like an elder or being older than you are young or anything like that. This is just my book. I picked 50, totally arbitrary. That I Absolutely. hopefully relieve some of the pressure. Yes. Thank you for summing that up for me. That was perfect. <laughs> you're, you're, not, you're not trying to like go toe to toe with AARP. No. Oh, good Lord. I can never, no. <laughs> they are, they are a, a great organization. The, the magazine, I, I highly recommend. There's some great journalism that goes on there. It is truly excellent. And I have a friend who works in their creative department. And I think people associate it, you know, in this very ageist way of like, oh, it only applies to people of a certain age bracket. But you can actually be a card-carrying AARP member despite your age. They actually do not limit based on age. Um, But it's a wonderful place to find out about all sorts of different people. And I think it really gets overlooked. So if nothing else, shout out to the AARP. Absolutely. My like one fact, my fun fact that I always love uh, trotting out uh, is that uh, the man? One of the managing editors of the a- AARP magazine uh, was Andrea Dworkin's widower, which is just not something I had ever. You, you could have knocked me over with a feather when I learned it, and I found that incredibly charming. It's a very small world. 
It's a very small <laughs> world indeed. All right, let's um stick to the the questions that we have before us, I think, rather than spending the whole afternoon discussing um, Andrea Dworkin's extended family <laughs> and what magazines they may have helped run. Would you mind reading our first letter? Uh, it's kind of in the other direction. It's from a, a younger uh, uh, listener than, than usual, and I, I found it really sweet. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the subject is Letter from a Young Poet. I do not know how to be a creative person without thinking of my loved one's perception of my work. Important to mention, I'm only 16. I know how young I am and how far I have yet to go. Poetry was my first love, and without it, I am nothing. And over this past year, fearfully, I have begun writing my own. My family is extremely close, but with their closeness, I forever feel distant from them. My family is not creative and most certainly does not understand the practice of poetry. I have just recently begun entering my poems in competitions, and I am mortified. Even if I lose, these poems may be published, and with my family's closeness instincts, they are going to want to read them. Not only is my writing personal, but it is abstract, like much poetry is. My family is quite judgmental. I feel they are not going to understand my work and laugh at it. I'm only 16. I haven't grown super confident yet. And the thought of people I love most giving input that is not welcomed makes me feel like I want to avoid publishing altogether. How do I cope? I am very different from my parents. To an extent, I don't even believe they are aware of. I am just afraid what's going to happen when they find this out. I really felt this one. I felt for Mm -hmm. this letter writer. Uh, I I think especially that sort of dawning sense of, I think I'm more unlike my family than they know yet. And I don't don't know that I want them to know how different I think we are yet. Um, That that really spoke to me. So I really felt where this uh, letter writer was coming from. I did too. I have a lot of empathy and personal understanding for that feeling of feeling quite different and then realizing that the people you love most have no clue just how different you are yet. Yeah. And and I really want to stress, letter writer, of course, there's a part of me that wants to say, you know, don't worry about it too much. Uh, I'm sure you can continue to enter contests. They won't necessarily find out about it until later. And I do think that there's some likelihood there, but I also just really want to take the letter writer at their word and, and assume you know, at some point, if you publish your writing, your family will, you know, hear about it or learn of it. Um, and, and they they may very well have some judgmental things to say or even just like ask questions in a way that feel uh, like they bring up too, too much self-consciousness for you. So that makes sense to me. I don't think that's an unreasonable level of anxiety to have. No, all of this is absolutely normal. Like, this is an incredibly normal thing to feel at this age, at this stage of life. Figuring out who you are and how that is different or even at odds with your family of origin can be incredibly difficult and painful. But I just also want to kind of open the door for the fact that even though this feels scary, it it can, that the option exists for this to actually bring you closer at some point. And I think sometimes our families just need time to adjust and understand the ways that you are different from them. So I just want to put that out there, that there there are a lot of ways this could actually go, even though it might feel like there's only one way it could ever actually end up. I, I appreciate that. I think, too, I'm so torn between both that sense of it may also hopefully provide them with an opportunity to, you know, ask you questions or like, you know, be gentle. Um, and and I also just wanted to flag letter writer. Sometimes family closeness can feel stifling 
um, or like it's deeply invested in making sure that you look or sound or act in a certain way. And so without saying that that closeness is therefore necessarily bad or that your family are bad people and that it's just your job to try to get as far away from them as you can so you can be your own person. I do just also, you know, I want to say if letter writer, you know, you eventually come to have complicated feelings about your family's definition of closeness, um, I would really encourage you to start to think of Again, that like communal definition of closeness as something you are allowed to have thoughts and feelings about, some things that you are allowed to find complicated, um, that there may be some ways in which their closeness is very sweet or loving, and there may be ways in which that closeness is a little bit prying um, or a little bit judgmental, that it's not itself only like a universal, constant good. Does that make sense? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I'm in graduate school uh, for marriage and family therapy. So, so this really like hits uh, very close to home for me and what I've been kind of working on and the way that these assumptions about what is okay and normal in families can really affect the way we interact with them. And so I'm glad that you pointed out that like at any stage of life, it's okay for you to start to be curious about what that closeness feels like for you versus what it might feel like for everybody else in the family. And that it's okay to question that and even to redefine that and to set boundaries for like, this is what it feels okay to me uh, versus what this might feel to everybody else in the family. And it's okay for those things to be different. But I have a couple different thoughts about some things in the letter that that stood out to me. And I wanted to point one out if that's okay. Please. Um, I really got hung up on a, a section of this letter that said, you know, my family is not creative and definitely doesn't understand the practice of poetry. And I think that can absolutely be somebody's experience of of their family. But I kind of want to push on that a little bit to just say that it's okay, I think, if our families don't understand the things that we love entirely, especially at first. I think that a lot of times those things can feel even alienating for families of like, oh, this is so different to us. Like, we don't do this. This isn't something our family does or that we're known for. And so I think sometimes families, when they feel a little threatened by an outside new thing, can push against it. So if that's something that's happening, that's also kind of normal. But I think it's okay if they don't understand it at first, but they think they do need to understand what it means to you and what it means or what it brings to your life, because that's actually what helps them get to know you better. Like I have a lot of interests in my life that my family does not share, but they fully understand what those things mean to me and therefore they respect them enough in a way that we can coexist with those things. So I think if your family is not a safe space right now to share your work, if you feel like they're going to laugh. I fully trust that instinct. I think we all know what the patterns are in our own families. So I would really encourage this writer to put some time into finding a safe space where they can share their poetry and to find a community of people where you can feel appreciated and not judged and not laughed at. And I think that over time, really being a part of that community helps you build up a muscle that will eventually let you kind of tiptoe into what it might feel like to share with your family. Um, Because if they are a safe space over time, that's a great way to connect with them. And if not, you will have developed this community that can grow and shift over time, but where you get to be entirely yourself. Yeah, I, I am also sort of torn between, I have some some advice that I think falls under a solely like practical or pragmatic um, banner, which is like, 
if you want letter writer, if you find out that whether you win or don't win a particular competition, if if it's going to be published, you can always ask if uh, they'll publish it under a pseudonym um, or as anonymous. That's not uncommon or unheard of in, in poetry circles. Um, and that's certainly one option available to you, uh, at least for the present. Um, that's fine. That's genuinely fine. Um, you can do that. Uh, it's a, it's an accepted and understood practice. Uh, it does not mean that you can never talk to your family about it, but it might just, you know, give you some of the space, uh, that you need right now to, you know, try your hand at this for the first time. Um, you know, some of your other options as I see them include, you know, uh, bringing it up first, uh, just to, you know, stop worrying about when are they going to discover it or when are they going to hear from somebody else that I've been sending out my poetry. Um, you might find that a little bit daunting, but also a little bit more freeing because it just means you get to say, hey, I've been sending out my poetry to some competitions. If any of it gets published, I'll let you know. Um, and then at least you get you get to control uh, sort of when and, and some of the terms of that conversation. Um, beyond that, though, I think it's also helpful to, you know, hope for the best and prepare for the realistic, which is to say, like, they may very well, uh, you know, not immediately say things like, has poetry saved your life? Like they might laugh. Um, some of the laughter might feel, you know, loving or warm on their end. You might experience it in a different way. It might be more pointed on their end. You know, I, I don't know exactly uh, what their kind of history of that kind of laughter looks like. So I don't want to assume either that they would just be like relentlessly cruel or that their laughter would be sweet and you should just like let it go. Um, but just kind of think like, what would I do? You know, what would be some of my options if they did tease me a little or if they did laugh? Like, would I want to ask them to stop? Um, would I want to joke back in order to like end the conversation more quickly and then kind of move on? Um, would I want to quarrel about it? Um, any of those seems like a fairly reasonable possible responses um, so I, I guess I would just say, yeah, like, yeah, that seems like a likely outcome. I think your fear is probably going to come to pass. Like at some point, your family will learn that you've written poetry and they will probably, even if only a little bit or in a very kind way, you know, laugh because sometimes people laugh about their family members. Um, and then to just kind of figure out how, how do I want to handle that? Um, how will I move on past that? Um, it doesn't, it's not something you can prevent, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. Like, if if that's the thing that you fear happening, I think the best thing to do is to assume that it will and then figure out what can I do um, to make that a little bit easier for myself. I'm really glad you suggested kind of outlining options for if that situation did actually come to light. I think sometimes that preparation is a really helpful step to kind of actually just face what it is because I will push back a little bit and say I don't I think sometimes families seem really scary and they may not always be. And I think especially at that age, every, I mean, when I was in my teenage, I I assumed everything was going to be like the worst possible version of everything. And sometimes that's fully accurate and sometimes it's not. So I think I will remain hopeful that letter writers family um will be open to what poetry means to them, even if they just need a little time to better understand it. Um but I think you gave some really good advice and I hope these options are really helpful. Yeah. And, you know, if it feels just like wildly uncomfortable and you just hate the way that they talk to you about it, um, you know, again, I would just suggest like limiting how much you want to engage in those conversations. But your other options are, as you say, you can not publish altogether, which it doesn't sound like you really want to do. Um, or you can have a fight about it. Um, or you can 
try to see if there's a sort of middle ground conversationally. Um, I don't know of any way that I could guarantee that you could publish under another name for the rest of your life and no one in your family would ever know. I can't promise you that there's some way to never deal with it. I think it's just one of those things where, um, you know, you, you will, you will have to undergo. And I say this, like remembering full well as a teenager, how like acutely aware I was of possible or potential or impending embarrassment and how much it felt like being flayed alive. Like I really do get that being 16 and publishing poetry, um, the kind of like, oh my God, that's so cute from your mom just feels like, please send lightning directly through my body until I die. I, I can't add any more. That was just perfect. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's very much how it feels. Yeah. Um, good luck. I, you know, I, I, it feels a little silly to say like, I hope they just don't care. But one of the upsides is like, like a sad upside, I guess, is like most people really just don't care about poetry. Um, I realize this is what one of the editors of Poetry Magazine got in a lot of trouble for saying last month, um, but I don't work for any poetry magazines, and I don't think that's the same thing as saying poetry isn't important. It's just most people don't care very much about poetry, and that's not poetry's fault, um, but that will hopefully be to your advantage, which is that, you know, I don't think any of them are likely to make that their sort of number one priority. Boy, that just sounds dismissive. That's on me. Write me back. Let me know how that goes. I would love to hear in a couple of months how you're handling it, how you're feeling. Um, and of course, as always, if your family starts giving you a lot of input, you are always entitled to say, I love you guys. I get, I appreciate this, but this is more input than I want. Can we please talk about something else? Let's move on. Uh, I'll read this next one. The subject line also really charmed me. It was, should have taken up woodworking instead. How does one do triage when it seems like all of their family and friends are falling apart at the same time? In the last two years, many of my friends have died, gotten divorced, been diagnosed with cancer, dealt with the death of a child, with domestic violence, with major mental health crises or problems with their kids, attempted suicide, dealt with house fires, been in foreclosure, etc. Both of my parents have gotten divorced this year. Both were also threatened with a gun by their ex. And in both cases, I had to take off work and travel to help them. I've tried therapy, but both of my therapists have quit while I was working with them. And I felt like they shared too much about themselves with me anyway. I'm a social worker, and my job involves connecting people with services, navigating insurance systems, appealing benefit denials, and so on. I'm practical, non-judgmental, and hard to shock. I'm good at navigating phone trees, and I tend to approach healthcare systems as others might changing oil in their car. Sometimes it's hard, but I happen to be good at it, and I'm happy to help someone else who isn't. I'm also fine with backing off if somebody doesn't want my help. Now that I've developed a reputation for this, I'm often the first person others reach out to in a crisis. But I'm wondering if it's healthy for me to be this involved with everyone. Recently, I was in the ER for a health emergency of my own, during which I was still trying to coordinate local support for some friends in a crisis. I was trying to figure out how I'd get out of the hospital and run some errands for them the same day. Felt like that might mean my priorities are out of whack. I can't remember the last time I hung out with a friend who wasn't going through the worst thing that had ever happened to them. I was so scared for both of my parents recently, and I wonder how long it will take for me to stop having dreams about them being killed. I feel primed for the next crisis all the time. It definitely doesn't help that a lot of this is what my actual job is, too. None of this is any of my friends' fault. I just feel like I don't do anything fun anymore, that I've run out of time to exercise or things that I enjoy on my own. I also have a young child and a partner who need me to pay attention to them. Burnout isn't the right word for this, but it's definitely taking a toll on me. My wife is worried about me. How can I get some space without abandoning people who need me? 
Is it normal for everything to be falling apart at once? Or am I doing something to make all of this worse? How do I find a robot therapist who won't quit and won't share any details about their life with me? Oof. Lots of questions in this one. This, this is uh, lots I, going on. I really, really feel for this letter writer. This is a very real situation for a lot of people who work in any sort of service-related field where so much of your day is about holding space for people's very difficult life experiences and feelings. And that is a really, really heavy thing. And then to have your personal life also be full of that sort of trauma. This is a lot. This is a lot for this person to be living through. And I just have so much compassion for what they're experiencing. And especially this idea that is there maybe not a, a way for me to get space without abandoning people? Like, I really want to just kind of stay curious about what are the ways that you can find space that don't feel like abandonment? Because I think so often, if you are a therapist or a social worker, it can be really easy to feel like that if you're not present for everybody, and if you have these skills, you should be using them all the time. And if you don't, you're irresponsible or abandoning people. And that's just not true. Yeah. Yeah. For me, my question that I, I wanted to ask as I was reading this letter was, well, what do your friends do when you tell them no? And it's not clear to me if this letter writer has ever tried that. So, you know, that fear of like, um, I don't want to abandon people, but how do I get some space? And, and I think my question is, have you ever tried to get any or have you just hoped that people won't ask you for something? Because if it's the latter, if it's you say yes every time, you have never communicated to any of them that sometimes you need to take a break or say no, you know, the good news there is there's a ton of room for improvement because that means you can start saying no a lot. Um, I, I, I'm inclined to think that this is the case because I feel like if this letter writer had tried declining in the past and people had pushed back, they would have included that information in here. Does that strike you as a potentially accurate reading? I think so, for sure. I, I definitely got the feeling that the idea of saying no felt just so against what this person has kind of believed and and has made a part of their work life, but also maybe their identity in a way. And so I think that I share your your curiosity about whether or not this has ever been attempted. And if so, what did that sound like? And then how did it go? Yeah. And letter writer, I want to be clear, you know, I don't say that to as if to, you know, tease you or say like, well, you know, obviously you should have just been saying, no, this is your problem. Just fix it. Um, so much as just, it seems like what you've been doing is like overtraining and maybe getting the sense of, because I am qualified through the nature of my work to help people navigate things that's often really difficult. And because all of these needs like independently are really serious and legitimate, um, I ought to be able to help without ever stopping to think, you know, if you don't, um, consciously create alone time or downtime or hobby time or exercise time, um, no one else will give that to you on your own behalf. And so it, 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 it's that question of needing to shift from, well, I could technically do it right now. I'm not, a, I'm not doing anything so pressing that I couldn't set it to the side. And then you kind of realize, gosh, that just actually added up to the whole last two years. And I need to stop thinking of it in terms of, I guess I kind of technically could do this right now. Um, and in, instead start um, consciously um, and, and ferociously scheduling time that has nothing to do with helping other people navigate their insurance claims um, and taking that as seriously as you do the time that you spend going to work or, you know, helping to make dinner for your kid. 
I think those are all good steps to be taking. I also want to address, I think, some of the feelings that come up when you start taking those steps. And this is something I've navigated in my life. And I I seem to also have friends who we all kind of fall into this very similar experience of the letter writer of being the person that everyone in your community goes to for advice or help or support in some way, especially in moments of crisis or trauma. And when you start saying no, and when you start even setting the most baby of boundaries, there can be reactions. And sometimes it's really hard not to internalize those reactions or someone's disappointment as the fact that you've let them down or that you've abandoned them or that you're doing the wrong thing. But that's also just a sign of like, you're doing something that's allowing that relationship to maybe shift and change in a way that would be good for both of you. And I would just really remind anybody who's in this position that sometimes when you do start setting boundaries and taking care of yourself, like, people will feel like, wait a minute, I've gotten used to you being there for me whenever I need you, whether or not that's a legitimate crisis or not. I think people get really comfortable with that. So I would just encourage you that if you start having complicated feelings about saying no and people's reactions to just be really kind and compassionate with yourself because you are allowed to set those boundaries in the same way that everybody else is. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really useful too because my hope is that the letter writer just mostly hasn't been doing this and that their friends will, for the most part, very cheerfully say, thank you for letting me know. I've appreciated the help that you've already given me. I, I'm really glad to know your limits so that I can, you know, do something for you in return, even if that something is just look elsewhere for resources. Um, but it is, as you say, absolutely possible that one or more than one person might, you know, maybe not throw a fit, but maybe say like, are you sure? What about tomorrow? Try to push on that boundary a little bit. And that that might feel, again, like, hostile or unloving um, and that you will need to find other ways to um, make sure that you're going to be able to commit to those no's. And, you know, one of the possible um, pitfalls that I see ahead for this letter writer is like, if you say, I can't help you with this to someone, you're going to maybe be tempted to say, but let me help you find someone else who can and then end up dedicating almost just as much time um, to like coming up with your replacements as you would have as if you had done it in the first place. And then you'll feel like this isn't helping me at all. And so I would just encourage you, letter writer, when you need to say no, part of what you are also going to be saying no to is solving the problem. And that's, you know, maybe it will help you to have like a quick bullet list of like, here's a couple of organizations or a couple of experts that you can get in touch with um, that you can just share as like a general referral list. But to really commit to not, you know, I'm going to do this research with you right now um, because that's just another way of doing the same work. And, and to then, again, just remind yourself, you know, before you came into the world, people found ways to solve their problems. And, you know, if you had to move tomorrow or if you were in a bus accident and were recovering in the hospital for weeks, they would have to find somebody else anyways. So that can be a helpful way of putting it in perspective, like, Yes, it's great to be helpful to the people that you love. You are also not the only thing standing in between them and like chaos and despair. Um, and that will hopefully go a long way towards making you feel like saying no is okay. I, again, I'm so curious, like, did your friends know that you were in the ER when you were texting them about like helping them with their problem? Like, I'm also just really curious, like, did you share that information? Because I could potentially see them saying like, oh my gosh, you're in the ER. No, 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 don't worry. And then you saying, it's fine, it's fine, I got this. Um, or I could also see that you 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 didn't mention that and they they would have, if they had known, said, I will find someone else. So I don't have more advice on that front. I'm just curious there. Yeah, absolutely. I also just want to touch on, I'm just so sorry that this, this letter writer has had such a 
unethical experience of therapy. And I know that these therapists exist. I have experienced therapists who just are unable to keep their personal lives out of a room and how detrimental that can be when you've taken the time to actually ask for help and to really carve out that space and then to have somebody not respect it. So first, I just want to acknowledge that that's that's just crappy. And I'm really, really sorry that happened. I wish, you know, I wish finding a therapist wasn't sort of like finding a pair of perfect genes. Like you do have to sometimes try other people. So I would encourage them to maybe ask around about someone who has been more vetted that people have had experience with, but then also to not be a therapy snob and to just say there are so many other ways to find the support that this letter writer very much deserves in their life. And that can be you know, peer support groups that can be specialized groups, especially people who have experience with like caregiver syndrome, who understand what it is to be the person on call for so many people and how difficult that can be to shift in your life. So I would encourage them that if therapy does not feel like the right fit for you, that there are very many support groups that exist, even as like private Facebook groups um, for people who very much understand what it feels like to be you and how hard it is to make that shift to start saying no. I really appreciate that suggestion about support groups. Um, I I think that's an excellent thing to potentially add, um, whether or not the letter writer decides to try a third therapist right now or not, um, especially given that they have also dealt with some pretty significant like deaths and bereavements recently. Um, So I I think that that is also a great idea. Um, With the therapy thing, I'm a little bit, again, like somewhere on like a brisk Cheerios spectrum because like, you know, they quit while you were working with them. That happens. You know, I'm sorry. It's inconvenient. It's unpleasant. It's frustrating. It's no fun, but it happens. It's normal. You can't prevent it. People quit their jobs. People move. People change careers. Um, People need to take time off work for whatever reasons. That's just going to happen. There's no way that you can prevent that. There's, There's no way that you can find a therapist and get some sort of guarantee that they're going to be working with you in five years. So, I would just say, I'm sorry, but there's nothing that you can do about the possibility of a therapist quitting. Um, And, you know, I don't know what they were sharing about themselves. I don't know what that looked like. I can certainly imagine ways in which it got, you know, unprofessional or unethical. But I, I also am curious, like, what happened when you said to your therapists, I don't want to talk about your life. Can we please go back to discussing my problems? Because there's, again, that curious absence there. And what, I, what I'm tempted to fill that blank in with is you did not say anything. And that's not to say, therefore, it's your fault um, or therefore they couldn't have done anything wrong. I'm just really curious, like, you know, when your therapist does something that you don't like, I often hear from people who say, I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything. And um, I, I think that that is a great way to feel really alienated from the therapeutic process. But it is, you know, it is a process that requires your participation as well. So if you realize that something isn't working, if you don't like something, if you want to ask a question or push back, you must do it um, because your therapist will not read your mind. Um, so I would say, you know, to that end, if you want to look for another therapist, bring it up at the beginning. Say my last two therapists, uh, I felt like they shared too much about their own lives. Uh, I'm wary of that. I don't want that to happen. I, I'm really interested in a, in a therapist who has a really clear sense of what our uh, time together is going to be spent discussing. Um, and then if your therapist at some point mentions something about their personal life and that brings up a fear for you, say something that, that would be my best advice on that front. I could not agree more. I would also, in the same way that you just suggested, you know, upfront that you've had this experience of therapists sharing too much of their lives to also say, I've historically felt 
uncomfortable or unable to speak up in these moments. And so like that, that will be a thing that your therapist, it would be helpful for them to know up front so that if perhaps they sense body language from you that maybe says like, oh, I'm not so sure about this, they can hopefully take the time to say like, I'm, I'm sensing something is going on, like, and to, to try to like pull that out from you. There are, there are definitely types of therapists who practice who will really focus on making sure that they're trying to get everything from you that they may be sensing that you're not saying. Um, but that's definitely not all therapists. So Again, that's why I think like, you know, if if therapy feels like a frustrating search process, which it absolutely can be, support groups online are so great for that, support groups in person and, you know, even a good good old Facebook private private group can sometimes be really helpful for finding people who specifically understand what your experience has been because it is a very particular experience to be somebody who works um as a social worker and who takes on the weight of so many conversations and it's difficult not to take those home with you on top of your very real life which has really been full of a lot of very difficult and painful moments right now yeah and then because i feel like I, i've done all the briskness i want to with this letter writer i also want to kind of go back to you know letter writer you say you wonder how long it's going to take to stop having dreams about my parents being killed um and um i would encourage you to think of your own letter here as something that you were just shown by like either a client in your work or a friend sharing this with you. And I would encourage you to, you know, what would you recommend somebody who wrote a letter like this as a social worker? Because when I see this, I I think this is potentially a person who is experiencing now like sleep disorders as a result of proximity to violence or threatened violence, um, multiple bereavements, possible side effects of experiencing traumatic events, these might also be things that you would want to discuss, um, not simply with a therapist, but with your primary care physician and potentially a psychiatrist. And I don't say any of this to say, like, start collecting diagnoses and just get on a lot of medications. But some of this, I think, um, kind of isn't simply a question of, like, finding a great talk therapist and talking it through. Some of this might also uh, affect uh, like physical and physiological processes like sleep um, and things that are really, really important to your physical health, which is not like a, a totally separate creature from your mental health. Um, but, you know, it, it seems like you've had kind of a habit of ignoring your own like body signals of like, I'm tired. I need to rest. I need to not add another thing onto my plate today. And now I think it's really the time to put that part of yourself front and center and think about what other resources do you need? How many hours a week do you need to prescribe for yourself where you do nothing? Um, and how do you treat yourself with the same kind of like care and love and compassion that you've been treating all these other people in your life? Um, and again, I say all that knowing full well that even as you do those things, you will still have dealt with the death of friends, um, with you know serious health crises of friends, with friends suffering house fires, losing their homes, with your parents uh, being threatened. None of those things are going to magically be fixed because you are getting more sunshine um, or taking more walks or turning your phone off a few more afternoons a week. Um, so I, I don't mean to say any of that. Like, And then you'll feel great. Um, this, is, this will still be a lot to deal with, but you deserve, again, just that same care that you have been giving others. And if you need to just kind of say to everybody for the you know immediate future until further notice, I'm not going to be able to help navigate all of these systems. I love you all, but I'm dealing with health crises of my own. Um, you know, maybe having it just like a one and done announcement um, will make it feel easier than if you have to like tell everybody individually the next time they ask you for a favor that you can't do it. 
Absolutely. And not even in a very practical way, a thing I've been through phases like this in my life where I just felt like I couldn't do that. And I fell into the trap of, I'll just refer, I'll refer, I'll refer. And then I spent all these hours referring and it took just as long. A bounce back can sometimes be the simplest way to handle this for people who are maybe not in your innermost circle. I think sometimes we can say no to everybody and that works. And sometimes very real things, especially with our you know closest family members, can kind of push through those no's in a way that you can't always get around. And so I think if you really want to push back people who maybe are not in your inner innermost circle and just set boundaries there, the, the power of a bounce back, I really do think is nice because sometimes even just responding to say I'm not responding to anybody mm-hmm. or that I need to set boundaries can be really exhausting. And then people have reactions to that as well. And that can be really stressful. So I would just encourage like any form of that announcement that requires the the least amount of of input and effort from you. Yeah, um, I think it's a, a good kind of moment to sort of segue into uh, your own work because that last sort of open-ended question about like, is it normal for everything to be falling apart at once uh, kind of felt like a great uh, opportunity to ask, well, you've recently spoken to a lot of, you know, women with uh, valuable life experience. You know, is there a consensus? Is it normal? Do things tend to fall apart all at the same time? Yes, they do. <laughs> and it, And it does not stop. Um, I think that The more I work on book projects where I interview large amounts of people, the more I am both kind of silenced and also elicits this very kind of knowing nod of like, yep, this doesn't get easier. But it it shifts in a way that things start to, they feel like you have more skills and more tools to really face these things. But I think the universal thread is always community. It's always like, what does your support system look like? And I think especially in regard to this um, most recent letter writer, like if you are the support system for everybody and you don't actually have your own where you allow yourself to be really vulnerable and to ask for the things you need, life just feels infinitely harder. And I think sometimes we assume that support system will come from our biological families or the community that we grew up in. And sometimes it just doesn't for a lot of reasons. So the thing I really enjoyed collecting in this particular book was all of the different ways that these women found community and really sought it out actively. And especially in the form of intergenerational connections, I think that provides a sense of perspective that is just so valuable because it is really, really easy to get lost in the spirals that living through a lot of really difficult stuff can send you on. And sometimes being able to speak with somebody who has been there and knows what it feels like and then kind of knows the way through it, that's a really, really powerful support to have. Yeah. I'm so curious too. I I wonder, you know, uh, when you are approaching a project like, you know, contacting so many different people um, to sort of ask for anything that might fall under this sort of like general category of wisdom. Um, Did you find either that there was a sort of tendency uh, among your respondents to focus on like lessons or positivity? Did you find that there were like outliers of people who, you know, had advice that was more along the lines of like things could get really bad? Like, did it seem like most of the answers were at odds with one another or with tension or did they seem to be um, more harmonious? Did that vary? Hmm. I would say the vast majority of people I interviewed had gotten to an age where they had fully embodied this concept of yes and, and they recognized that yes, things get harder, and also you still figure out how to navigate them and you can make them work. When I felt people kind of 
maybe push back a little bit on questions that were a bit more vulnerable, it would be to kind of insert these expected stories of like making the best of it and finding the positive moments. And I always listen to those with great respect and appreciation. But then I also kind of encourage people to be a little curious about, well, what were the parts that were hard? What were the parts that maybe felt complicated or that don't feel entirely resolved? Because I think that the actual wisdom we have to share kind of exists in those gray spaces because mm-hmm. yes there are there are plenty of people who have lived lives that were full of privilege and and i think luck in a way where they weren't really you know experiencing a ton of trauma in their lives but i think the older we get the more chances we have to live through really difficult things and so i felt quite buoyed to know that women in their 80s and 90s and even over 100 were still really grappling with the way that you know, life is really complicated. And even if nobody looks like they're struggling, everybody is struggling. And the one thing that makes it simpler um, is to just have somebody to tell that to and to have somebody who will just listen. And I think that the thread I really appreciated was how little judgment existed. Mm. And that seemed to fade a bit of you know, I can be there for my friends, for my family, listen to their struggles. It's not my job to solve it. And it's also not my job to judge it. And that Mm. kind of like letting go, I found incredibly refreshing because it's not an answer. It's not a quick solution, but it's very honest. And it's, it's a very real way to exist in the world, to hold space for someone and to love them and listen to them, but to know that you don't have to fix it and that you don't have the answer either. And that's okay. I I appreciate that so much. It's so funny because it, it, I think helped me realize what sort of, you know, didn't satisfy me about my own answer to our first letter writer, Mm. which was, uh, you know. I, I don't always know how to communicate to someone. I think the thing that you are most afraid of happening is going to happen. And I mm-hmm. don't exactly think that's bad news um, because it can it can feel or easily become dismissive or fatalistic. Um, and I, I think it's possible to chart some sort of course between the two, which is to say, not always and not always in the exact way that you think it's going to happen, but often the thing you fear most um, is is coming. That's why you're afraid of it. That's mm-hmm. why it's preoccupying you. Um, and and because there's there's only so many different things that can happen to people, and there's only so many fears one can have. Um, and, and they they come right, like whether it's the loss of a relationship that we prize, um, or the loss of security that we think that we need, or death, um, or the death of the people that we love. Um, those things are almost guaranteed to happen. Although you know, suffering in life is not always distributed equally. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to figure out how can that, how can that, how can you find reassurance in that? Or how can you find peace mm-hmm. in that? Or how can you find something useful in saying, it's not necessarily good, the thing I'm afraid of is coming, but it is perhaps a relief to know that I'm not going to be successful at like anxiously worrying about it mm-hmm. so well that I prevent it that was never going to be the answer. Like, mm-hmm. I was never going to successfully forestall this pain by sitting and worrying about it for weeks or months or years, and that fixed it. Worrying is not the solution. I also think there's something to be, I don't know, noticed about the fact that we avoid we avoid pain and we avoid our biggest fears for very reasonable <laughs> survival instinct reasons. Um, but I also think when you experience those things, which are very much a part of everyone's life. There is this kind of entrance to a club of sorts of people who understand what it feels like to have lived through 
a major loss or a death or an illness or something that has just completely changed the way you have experienced your life. And I think so often back to my life before I experienced a lot of the like major traumas and things that I've been through. And I think I felt a little bit freer, but I also, I didn't have community in the way that I do now. And I now look at challenges and fears very differently because I know that on the other side of that fear, regardless of whether or not it plays out exactly like I feared, or it actually is just some slightly different version of an outcome, there is a community on the other side of that. And there are people who understand what that feels like. And to be able to find those people and sit with them and to actually be with those people is such a gift. And I think that's a really hard thing to even care about when you're like a teenager. Like that just, that would not have processed for me at that age at all. But now being 40, I'm like, oh, you tell me that on the other side of this really difficult, scary thing, there is somebody who will kind of be waiting for me and say like, yes, I know this road. I have been there. It is hard. I can't fix it for you, but I will sit with you while you figure it out. That is literally all I want out of life anymore. And, you know, when I talk to people who were like in their 90s, that was all anybody wanted was like, who's sitting with me? Who is with me in these moments? Who is not expecting me to be anything other than exactly who I am right now and accepts me as that? Like, that's it. That's That matters the most at the end of the day. And that's really what I came away with. And I think so often a, a lot of these huge fears we have are are actually just things that sometimes stand in the way between us being able to connect more fully with people that will become important parts of our lives. That sounds just lovely. And I'm so glad that that was uh, something that you got to spend so much of your time um, working on recently. I hope that book release goes really, really well. And Thank you. It sounds like uh, grad school has also been going really well. That seems like a really exciting combination. It's a good combo. It's one foot in kind of my old life and one foot in a new one. And that that kind of in-between liminal space is a little wiggly, but also there's a lot of fun stuff in that wiggly space too. Love a liminal. Love <laughs> a liminal. Grace, thank you so much for taking the time uh, between your book pub and your finals. Uh, I hope you do something lovely with the rest of your afternoon that requires absolutely no work or energy or effort and it's just fun. Thank you. I plan on spending a lot of time with our pets. It's going to be great. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, thanks again. It's fabulous to get to talk to you um, and take care. And before I let the rest of you go, I have an update uh, from a letter writer, which is very exciting. I feel like I've been getting a couple of updates lately and, and I'm thrilled. I don't know what it was about this year, but I, I, I've been putting out calls for updates for such a long time and, and now I'm starting to get them, which is very thrilling. So, this is an update on the FOMO letter. Thank you for answering my question on the show. I'm the FOMO person from the 914 episode. Your show was a real comfort to me during the long quarantine, and at one point it was my main go-to to soothe anxiety and restlessness. Um, I really appreciated what you said about the ambitiousness of my jealousy. I've never had anyone frame that aspect of me quite so accurately. Of course, I'm not now going to think of it as an unqualified good, but those reframings can be really helpful to redirect flaws into things I can also express positively. Thanks again. I will confess, I, I love an update that's just, thanks, I really enjoyed your advice. So I, I feel a, a little bit as though I am cheating you of um, something with a, a little bit more uh, productive tension to it. But shoot, I, I, I like hearing that somebody was helped by my advice. So I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And I think it can also be a, a lovely route out of a shame spiral, which is, 
you know, there are certain elements uh, of this particular tendency which are not helpful to me or to others and that I need to, you know, reconsider. But uh, the fundamental desire that underpins it is not itself a bad thing. It's not bad to want reassurance or closeness or ambition. Um, if one can be said to want ambition, one really can't. That was uh, that was on my end. Anyways, all of this is just to say, letter writer, I'm so glad that you found this helpful. Um, and uh, I hope that you get to just continue to dream bigger and bigger. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. First of all, letter writer, congratulations on surviving your childhood. Not yeah. everybody does. Yes, absolutely. I want to acknowledge like what sounds like an incredibly painful situation that necessitated you leaving home to find somewhere else safe to be. That's an incredibly difficult thing and traumatic thing to navigate as a young person. And I'm so happy that you were able to get out of those situations and to find something that maybe was not the healthy friendship and relationship that it seemed like it could be, but that you found your way out of that. That's a really big deal. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.